a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Oh man, there is a lot going on. And by the way, most of it, if you're paying close attention, is going to make you just a little bit uncomfortable. Sorry, that's that's the world we live in today. Let me start by, first of all, welcoming you to the show, whether you're a longtime wrong thinker or dipping your toes into the water of challenging the narrative. It's a scary place to go initially, and I, I remember very well, you know, that, that sense of panic of, oh, do I really want to do this? Is somebody going to label me? Are they going to start thinking badly of me because I'm not uh, chanting in unison with everybody else like a like a bunch of first graders? But there's something very liberating that comes, even at the cost of having to face and sometimes recognize and acknowledge that's a painful truth. There's something that sets you free, and I guess the ultimate goal here is not for you to nod your head thoughtfully and say, yes, Brian, you are so right, you are so smart, because I'm, I'm not always right. I'm not smart, but my goal is to encourage you to become the kind of person who thinks deeply enough on the issues surrounding whatever's going on around us that you become an unplayable chess piece on that great uh, game board of life because there's a lot of manipulation out there. I mean, just you know, case in point, look at the panic right now that is associated with uh, the release of 40-plus thousand hours of uh, January 6th surveillance video from the U.S. Capitol. Who doggies, the mainstream media is really losing their stuff over this because suddenly their narrative is being challenged. And you're hearing all kinds of dire, you know, excuse, well, this is dangerous to U.S. national security, you know, it's going to give people ideas. But what it really comes down to is if, uh, if people can see for themselves, if they can use their own eyes and their own ears to acknowledge what is going on, what the video actually shows. The narrative that we've been fed about this being an insurrection and people trying to overthrow the government to reinstate a, you know, a president who didn't get reelected, well, that just falls apart like a soup sandwich. Which it should, because it's, <laughs> it's not a complete narrative. It doesn't give us all the facts, only carefully cherry-picked and carefully honed facts that will lead us to the conclusion that anybody who doesn't support <clears throat> Joe Biden is uh, somehow a dangerous insurrectionist and must be dealt with. Okay, that's not where I'm going to start, though. I want to start with a, a couple of uh, examples of free speech, uncomfortable examples of free speech. I've enjoyed the Dilbert cartoons for a long time, and um, Scott Adams, you know, the, the, the guy, there's many things I disagree with him on. I, th- I thought he was one of the more smarmy defenders of the jab and, and uh, mandates and that sort of thing, but he's kind of come around, and he's had a little mea culpa here of late, although it's hard to tell because sometimes he can be pretty snarky. So it's, it's a little bit tough to tell, but he went off on a little bit of a rant last week that uh, was was very uncomfortable for a lot of people, myself included. And he talked about, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but basically he says, do not support groups that hate you. Now, he, he 
temper that with you should look at people on an individual basis, which, by the way, I think is absolutely sound advice. If we're going to make distinctions in people, we have to do it as individuals. And really, the, the clearest distinction that we can make is, is this person a decent person or not? That's what their behavior will tell us. Not their skin color, not how they voted, not their religion, not what uh, ethnic foods they may prefer, but their actual behavior. That will tell you if you're dealing with a decent person or not. But his point was simply this. Scott Adams talked about how he has tried to be helpful to, uh, to be supportive for, for blacks. And uh, he says in return, all he gets is, is hatred for it. And so he says, you know, I think we've reached the point where it's like, you're better off not interacting with groups. Now, I'm assuming he's talking about, you know, organized active movements and um, not so much as you must shun any individual who is black. But he's saying these these like Black Lives Matters groups, turn your back on them. You have nothing to gain by interacting with them. Now, you can imagine for people out there, not just the woke, but even the people who are just kind of afraid of what the woke mob might do. Oh, boy. They went off. Lots of newspapers have been dropping the Dilbert cartoon, you know, just, well, he said something he shouldn't have said. And here's the thing. If you really want to know what he said, you, you should go onto Twitter and, uh, and look him up and hear it in context, okay? Don't take my word for it. Don't take somebody else's word. Hear what he has to say. It's hard to disagree with what he's saying in terms of if you're trying to minimize you know, conflict and, and drama in your life, you're probably better off avoiding people who are looking for conflict. And right now there are groups out there that actually make a very handsome living doing exactly that. So one example of free speech, nope, it ain't always pretty. In this case, it was uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much Scott Adams is worth. I assume he's worth millions and millions of dollars. He has screw you money, you know, where he could he could conceivably, you know, just walk away from Dilbert and still probably do just fine. But I want you to think about what it says about the times that we live in. Wow. Very, very interesting. Here's the second example of free speech. And this one, I actually, I saw this uh, yesterday. I caught the, the uh, opening monologue from Woody Harrelson on uh, Saturday Night Live. Now, it was, I've seen some pretty good monologues on Saturday Night Live. This one was okay. It was, he spent a lot of time talking about pot and talking about, you know, getting high and that kind of thing. But Woody Harrelson, in, and I'm going to just quote from, from an article by Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. He says, Woody Harrelson demonstrates the pain of truth. Jeffrey Tucker says, in the course of an otherwise unmeaningful monologue on Saturday Night Live, Woody Harrelson let go with a remarkable theory of the COVID era. Now, it was supposed to be hilarious, but you know, the audience was kind of uncomfortable. They were, uh, do we laugh or not? And in a world in which people were long over COVID... All the investigations have been done, the condemnations issued, and masses of people fully cognizant of the underlying reality and its horrors. Tucker says, Woody Harrelson's remarks should have been funny, but instead the audience sat there in stunned silence. You could see the discomfort. Are they even allowed to laugh? Woody Harrelson, with the intuition of a great comic, quickly moved on to the next point, then closed out the opening. So, it's too soon to say, too soon for laughter, but not too soon for truth. And here's the gist of what he was saying. He tells a fictional story about finding a movie script. In that plot, the biggest drug cartels in the world get together, 
and buy up all the media and all the politicians and force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes and people can only come out if they take the cartel's drugs and keep taking them over and over. And he finishes by saying such a movie could not be made because it's just too implausible. Now, there's some serious cognitive dissonance that kind of settles over the room at that point. And again, you can tell the audience is like, ha, 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 ha. They want to laugh, but they really couldn't. From the sense of, well, that would would be acknowledging the truth that for many people is still too painful and just too shocking to get their minds around. They don't want to believe they could have been duped so thoroughly. Now, Jeffrey Tucker goes into some of the details as to why. Why it was, it was easy for some people to recognize very early on that the official response to COVID was wrong. Somebody had sent me a, a list of all the things that, that they got wrong <clears throat> in the COVID response. Lockdowns, mandates, jabs, masks, all of this, uh, distancing, all of that stuff. And I like the distinction that Connor Boyack made, which he said they didn't just get it wrong. It wasn't just a matter of, oops, well, we thought we knew what was going on, but we, we didn't. They lied. And a complicit press lied and continues to lie to this day to try to back it up. So Jeffrey Tucker points out, you know, Harrelson's story is not entirely wrong. It's not entirely fictitious. Think of how many things are brought to you by Pfizer in the for, on every form of entertainment. They have bought off much of the mass media. In the guise of comedy, he's come closer to truth than any mainstream venue of entertainment has yet to reveal. And as it turns out, his views are rather well-developed. So I'll, I'll have a link to this article from Jeffrey Tucker. I would encourage you, please take a look at it. It's funny. I mean, the headlines immediately, wow, he just wild conspiracy theory and Woody Harrelson goes off on some confusing, just nonsense. They're trying to play it out as well. He was so high that he didn't even know what he was talking about. But watch the audience's reaction. Watch the clip for yourself. And you'll see that uh, the the discomfort the audience is feeling is not the discomfort of somebody stating something so absurd that ha ha that's that's laughably false. If it was laughably false, guess what? They would have been laughing. They would have said, "Oh, this is this is satire." Ha ha! Look at him! Look at him poking fun. But instead, they were strangely quiet and clearly uncomfortable, which is what sometimes happens when you venture just a little too close to the truth. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and the Modern Conservative Podcast, or TMCPNation.com. Got links to all of them in my show notes at thebrianheitshow.com, and I would encourage you, please, please check them out for yourself and see if there's something that they have that can make your life better. There's a reason that I have uh, have cast my lot with each one of them, and uh, I think they're, they're good people, they're good companies. Highly recommend them to you, so feel free to, you know, Go shop till you drop, if that's what you need to do. 
So let's take a moment here and let's talk about the media reaction to the release of the January 6th video. It's been very interesting, to put it mildly. Got an article here from Andrea Woodberg. This is from AmericanThinker.com. With the J6 footage released, the mainstream media begin to panic. She says, practically within minutes of January 6th, the Democrat establishment, both politicians and the media, had their narrative in place. It was a violent insurrection that justified the biggest FBI manhunt in history. Saw Democrats conduct a kangaroo congressional hearing to cement the narrative, deprived hundreds of people of their constitutional rights, and cowed Biden's opponents into silence, lest they too be accused of insurrection. Now she says, for those same two years, the Democrat establishment resisted making public 14,000 hours of video footage showing J6 events in and around the Capitol, claiming that to do so was too dangerous. Now, though, with Kevin McCarthy having made the footage exclusively available to Tucker Carlson, well, the media are singing a very different tune. One thing about the Democrats for sure is that they firmly believe that, as Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. With consistency, a great soul simply has nothing to do. Or put another way, when you're a narcissist, the one consistent point when it comes to truth and narrative is that both must always serve your needs. Now, she admits, she says, I've never had a high opinion of Emerson, and I have a very low opinion of Democrats. Nothing shows more clearly that turn-on-the-dime response in the media regarding the 14,000 hours of video. For the past two years, the media have insisted that the 14,000 hours of video footage are irrelevant, and making the, the footage public would permanently endanger those who work and posture in the Capitol. Even more disgracefully, the Department of Justice has had the same attitude, refusing to make exculpatory footage available to January 6th defendants and doing so selectively only when the courts applied force. However, when it comes to footage that advances the narrative, the DOJ and the media have been thrilled to squeeze out a little here and a little there. A few months after events on January 6th, the media became positively orgasmic when the Department of Justice released small, carefully curated snippets intended to show that a group of unarmed people, mostly elderly, waving flags and taking pictures, was about to take down the entire American government. However, after two years of the J6 committee secret hearings and public passion plays and the media's insurrection drumbeat, and of course the Biden administration's police actions all coupled with the refusal to make the footage public, we now, that the, we now know that there's another story in those tapes. Indeed, Revolver, that's the news organization, Revolver, has done extraordinary work with publicly available videos from outside the Capitol that clearly show there were figures in the crowd doing everything they could to cajole and force people into the Capitol, including breaking windows, removing barriers, and issuing orders. Now, incidentally, the uh, FBI and the DOJ have protected all those black-clad people, or in Ray Epps' case, the red-hatted person, from arrest or even questioning. That all changed last week when House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, to his credit, handed all 14,000 hours of video to Tucker Carlson. Now, Andrea Woodberg says it would have been better if he'd put them online for crowdsourcing. She says, I have a dim view of the alleged security concerns leftists raised to oppose the tape's publication. In any event, the information is sufficiently important that the Capitol Police simply need to figure out new ways of doing security. 
but at least one person who is not enthralled to the narrative has the footage. And what's amazing is the U-turn that the media instantly made. After two years of studied disinterest or vocal opposition to the tape's release, writes John Nolte, the same corporate media that never showed any interest in, the, uh, in seeing the full police video taken during the mostly peaceful January 6th protest at the U.S. Capitol are now demanding all 41,000 hours of it. By the way, that's not an exaggeration. CBS News, CNN, Politico, ProPublica, ABC, Axios, Advance, Scripps, the Los Angeles Times, and Gannett together sent a letter to Kevin McCarthy demanding that they, too, get to see the tapes. Now, the justification is mind-boggling unless you accept the narcissistic worldview that they're never hypocrites because they always consistently serve their own immediate needs. Without full public access to access to the complete historical record, there is concern that an ideologically based narrative of an already polarizing event will take hold in the public consciousness with destabilizing risks to the legitimacy of Congress, the Capitol Police, and the various federal investigations and prosecutions of January 6th crimes. So wrote attorney Charles Tobin. That's a fancy way and a lot of words of saying, my gosh, the truth might actually get out. Yes. Yes, it might, and I'm sure that's why he is, you know, figuratively, you know, soiling himself at the thought that, uh, oh boy, people could see for themselves what's going on. Andrea Woodberg says, so the same people who for two years said it was imperative that we see only the J6 committees and DOJ's carefully curated snippets of footage now insist that without full public access, there is a republic-threatening risk that an ideologically-based narrative of an already polarizing event will take hold in the public consciousness, with destabilizing risks to the legitimacy of Congress, the Capitol Police, and the various federal investigations and prosecutions of January 6th crimes. Yeah. An ideologically-based narrative, kind of like the one they've been pushing on us for the last couple of years. As Andrea Woodberg puts it, in other words, there was no risk when they were persecuting ordinary Americans. However, there's an incredible risk when those ordinary Americans not only prove their innocence, but also, and she says, I'm guessing here, point to a massive government entrapment scheme. She says, if my guess is correct, Congress, the Capitol Police, and the FBI, and the DOJ deserve to be destabilized into the dustbin of history. I'm sitting there for a moment just kind of thinking, wow, what, how would I feel about that? Well, I think I'll have a Coke. That's, what, that's, that's how I would feel about that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad to see that the, the information is getting out there. The reaction of the media should tell you a lot about how they're not there to keep you informed. I'm sorry to beat that drum, but having, having worked in media for the better part of the last 40 years, it's so clear to me that uh, what passes for most of our, our mainstream legacy, you know, ev- legacy platforms out there, they're not there to keep you informed. They're not there to tell you what's going on. And it's sad. The greatest contrast that I have in my whole day, because I, I spend my day looking for good, qu- quality, credible information that I can then share with you. But when I go and I visit my 88-year-old mother, who she doesn't get out much, so her window on the world is the television. She is, you know, watching to see what is the nightly news saying. And it's usually, I think it's usually CBS that she watches. The local CBS affiliate has the best television signal. And so she watches the national news and then she watches the local news. Now, the local news is not bad. 
I think they actually still are fairly objective in what they do. But occasionally when I stop over to visit her, oh man, I catch uh, just a bit of, of the national news. And it's so clear that it, it's so misleading and so incomplete. You know, they can tell you everything you need to know within a 10-second uh, thing with a quick sound bite that, uh, that leaves so many unanswered questions but steers you unerringly into the arms of whatever narrative is being promoted by the people who are currently in power. It's really convenient, and I'm sure it's quite fortunate for all those involved. But it also leaves people terribly blinded to what the world around them really is like and what's really going on. So I'm happy for any cracks that appear and allow the truth to get through. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, if I'm going into rant mode, I just, I have to apologize, but I kind of get this way sometimes. Particularly over the weekend, I see a lot of things going up. People, thank you to the people who send me relevant articles. Ruben sent me some some really wonderful stuff over the weekend. And I just, man, I'm raring to go. I am ready to hit the ground running come Monday. I just, I want to get this all out there because there's so much good information. And, you know, here's one that, again, there, there's going to be some discomfort here, but I find Brandon Smith's articles at alt-hang on, I got to get the the thing here right. alt-market.us. I find his his articles very thought-provoking. And his latest one on deconstructing why leftist movements cannot coexist with people who love freedom. It's it's marvelous. I want to hit a couple of the high notes and and just just again, this is for the sake of helping you better see some things that are not being talked about by most other mass media sources. So what you do with this information, well, that's up to you. But the goal here is to, to at least give you a reason to pause, think a little more deeply, and then move forward, you know, do with the information as you will. Brandon Smith says, it should be clear to anyone paying attention during this current stage of instability in our modern era that something is very wrong in terms of American society. Now, just as an aside here, I think most reasonable people would say, he's right, yeah, yeah, that's pretty easy to see. He says, I'm not talking about ongoing issues of political corruption and economic mismanagement. He says, I'm talking about something much more dangerous. I'm talking about the systematic derailment of our culture, heritage, principles, history, and moral compass. I'm talking about the vicious devouring of the very sinews that hold our civilization together. Brandon says there's a cancer eating away at America, a concerted, organized effort to destabilize. For anyone familiar with the Conjuring movies, it's a bit like demonic invasion. As Ed Warren cautions, the three stages of attack are infestation, oppression, and finally, possession. But the little demon we're dealing with comes with Antifa patches, rainbow flags, and special pronouns. He says, this week I came across a statement by Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene in which she called for a national divorce, a separation of conservative red states and far-left blue states, a parting of ways due to our obvious irreconcilable differences. 
Now, leftists within the corporate media, of course, flipped out, accusing Green of inciting treason and the destruction of the U.S. And he says, well, I generally don't put much stock in the comments of politicians. I think it's important to address this particular sentiment because it echoes the arguments made by the liberty movement and the alternative media for so many years. It's just surprising to hear a prominent public figure say what we've been saying for so long. The frantic upheaval expressed by the political left in reaction to Green is something that he's written about in the past in his article, Separation or Purge, Sharing a Society with the Political Left is Impossible. That was published a year ago. Brandon says, I noted that leftists take a communistic approach to civil disagreement. They see the populace as chattel to be managed in the, same, in the name of the greater good of the collective, not as individuals with the right to disassociate. So here's a quote from that article. Why not carry this process forward to its natural conclusion? Red states break from blue states and red counties break from blue state control, and we live our lives the way we see fit. Let the leftists continue with their draconian economic and political models and see how well that goes for them. He says, I guarantee they will be in financial ruins within a decade. The list of the most indebted places in the country is dominated by blue states, and they will be begging to return to a union with red states, except for the zealots, which would lose influence as they continued to fall. But he says this will not happen peacefully. Because, again, the leftists cannot tolerate free activity. Their OCD will not allow them to be content with living in a collectivist state of their own. All states must be collectivist before they are satisfied. People are property to them, property of the collective, and people who are property cannot be allowed to make decisions without oversight. That's pretty spot on, I would say. Now, Brandon points out globalism and progressive authoritarianism have been inching forward for a long time in the U.S., but only in the past 10 years has the agenda become more obvious to the general public. During the COVID lockdowns and mandates, people finally witnessed the true intentions of the political left, which widely supported draconian restrictions and called for brutal punishments for the people that refused to to comply. In fact, he shows a graphic. This is from Fox News from a a poll that was taken, a large number of Democrats even supported Chinese-style COVID laws, including taking people's children away and implementing forced internment. Pretty crazy stuff. But that is the true face of the political left. Yes, there are moderates and issue-focused progressives, but these people tend to keep their mouths shut and go along to get along when it comes to the woke extremists. So the moderates are useless and they rarely call out the gatekeepers on their own side. To understand how we got to this place in our society and why leftist policies are poisonous to freedom-loving people, you have to understand the concept of deconstruction. And from here he goes into a fairly uh, detailed explanation of the globalist foundations who, from the 1960s onward, funded and created the social justice left. And this agenda's been going on for decades, it's openly admitted. In Alison R. Bernstein's book, Funding the Future, Philanthropy's Influence on America's Higher Education. Bernstein, by the way, was the vice president of education at the Ford Foundation and a former associate dean of faculty at Princeton. So the point here is that woke ideology is an artificial edifice of astroturf activism. Their manifestos of critical theory are conjured using... (laughs) Marxist and communist methodologies 
and then adapted for American audiences, luring in useful idiots as they go. But Brandon says the real power grab occurred in the late 1980s into the 1990s when deconstruction as a weapon for political and social upheaval was widely introduced into leftist circles. Before then, deconstruction derived from the work of the philosopher Jacques Derrida, and was often thought of as a mind game, a way to question long-held standards that acted as a basis for critical thinking or philosophy. But in the 1990s, it became something else. Derrida's ideas were to question binary notions in philosophy, but globalists and leftists expanded it as a foundation for questioning everything. Not just questioning, but engaging in hostile activities against the foundations of civilization. Leftists see structuralism, or order, as a target, and they hate anyone seeking to order society around rules, definitions, and principles that rely on discrimination of certain behaviors. So for leftists, all traditional rules and protections must be sabotaged, all aberrant behaviors must eventually become accepted as normal. They believe that in this way, society can be homogenized into a utopian world of perfect equity. So discrimination of anything except traditional principles is considered by them to be taboo, Because if people are allowed to discriminate, then that allows them to separate. And if people are allowed to separate, then collectivism of thought can never be achieved. The hive mind requires total conformity. So the purpose of deconstruction is to pick away at the fundamental systems and definitions and attempt to show them to be inherently flawed, problematic, or absurd. Now, usually this method relies on abstraction, appeal to emotion, and subjective experience rather than true analysis. In fact, critical analysis is considered the enemy of social justice because it places facts and evidence above subjective experience and mere feelings. A lot of our pronoun drama comes from this. See, emotional and self-absorbed people are easy to control. Critical people that value reason are harder to control. And for leftists to prevail, they must destroy critical thought and encourage reactionary emotion as the norm in society. And if that doesn't work, radical leftists argue that burning primary systems to the ground by force is preferred. The end game for them is not necessarily to be right. The end game is to win. Now, he goes into much more detail here, but I want to just jump ahead to, to the end of his article. One of the first things they accused Marjorie Taylor Greene of doing was inciting civil war. She never argued in favor of this. But they insinuated it, as if to say, try to walk away from us and we'll kill you. That should tell you something. I'm not telling you that, boys, separation is the only thing that we can do, but I'm telling you, if somebody brings it up, civil war shouldn't be your first thought. It is possible for people to have peaceful separation. Unless, of course, one person is so determined, I will own you, I will control you, that they just can't bear the thought. Brandon Smith says, hey, at this stage, I'm ready to say, let's let them try. Let's get this over with. There can be no diplomacy or reconciliation with groups that value left cultism and deconstruction ideology. He says the deepest intent of deconstruction is to poison the cultural well. The dream of leftists is to blow up the world because they see our current civilization as oppressive to their narcissism. At the same time, they exploit that narcissism and use it as a battering ram to wreak havoc. Through chaos, they hope to erect a new world order in which all values, all principles, and all morals are dead, and psychopathy becomes normal. He says you can't reason with a monster. 
You can only erase that monster from existence. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I just want to extend this invitation. It's not going to answer all your prayers. Your teeth will not be, uh, you know, bright and white and your breath minty fresh just because you subscribed. But you will definitely have some good food for thought. And I will share my show notes with you each day that I do the show just by going, just first of all, go to thebrianhydeshow.com, click on show notes down at the bottom of the page. There's the subscribe button. It's going to ask for your email. And that's all it takes. I don't share. I don't sell. I don't give your email away. I don't spam you. I'll just share my show notes on the days that I do this program, and you can do with the information what you will. So a couple quick articles to touch on. This one may sound a little bit out there, but I think this is a topic that really cannot be ignored. While, while our attention is focused on a lot of other things that are, you know, high profile, oh, did you hear Woody Harrelson's, you know, monologue and stuff, that's all fine and dandy, but did you realize the World Health Organization is quietly pushing for acceptance of an accord that would give it near complete control at every level of government globally in the event of a health emergency. I know, that weird sense of deja vu, that little shiver up your spine. Wait a minute, haven't we kind of seen this before? Yeah. So I'm including an article by Clark Barnes. This is from earlking56.family.blog. I'm not familiar with this, this website, but I'll tell you, the article is definitely worth your time, worth your consideration. It's the pandemic accord that the World Health Organization is putting forth that would give it control over U.S. livestock and the food supply. Really? The author here says, I've I've read many articles on the World Health Organization's attempt to take over the U.S. pandemic response through an accord that will allow it to impose vaccines, lockdowns, and essentially any restrictive measure it wants in the name of a virus. But he says no one is talking about how the accord will give the World Health Organization complete control over agriculture, wild and domesticated animals, as well as our food supply. Now think about it. You want to control people. That is the place where you're going to want to have absolute control. Last Monday, the World Health Organization's incoming chief scientist said... Governments should invest in vaccines for all strains of influenza that exist in the animal kingdom in case there's an outbreak among humans. Jeremy Farhar, who's leaving Wellcom to join the World Health Organization later this year, said during a media briefing in terms of a potential pandemic event, H5N1 is a big worry. Now, he warned that H5N1 or avian influenza viruses are being allowed to circulate among poultry, wild birds, and mammals, and it's the perfect way to create something nasty. Now, this should have your full attention because the World Health Organization is gearing up to give itself the, the authority rather, to declare pandemics and to control this country's pandemic response. That's a scary thing. That would subvert the sovereignty of nations. And this is a pandemic accord the Biden administration, at last I heard, was fully intending to enter into. So they're going to start with poultry. You're either going to allow your flocks to be controlled, surveilled, and vaccinated, or they'll be killed 
so the viruses they don't have won't spread to people or harm the environment. That's what they're laying the groundwork for. And the authority they'll derive from this, from which they'll derive this power is in the pandemic accord. So I, I'm going to recommend, take a look at this article. Maybe it's just too far out there. Maybe it's something you'll say, oh, no, I just, I couldn't see that happen. But I do believe it's, it's something we should approach with great caution. I believe that this accord will, if entered into by the U.S., usurp our nation's sovereignty, violate our privacy, it'll restrict our independence, and above all, infringe on our right to grow our own food and raise our own animals. Everything will be done in the name of a pandemic. And at least on paper, we will be powerless to stop it. And as we saw you know, with, the, with the earlier pandemic, even right down to your local hometown, there were many people who, well, we got to defer to what the health authorities are saying. You know, they're the ones who know what's best. What a crazy time we live in. So you'll find the article in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. All right, let's take this to a little higher note here, a little, little more positive thing to end on. Um, love this article that I found from Althea Hits. I'm sorry, Alethea Hits. Got to get her name right. If you're looking to bring a bit of happiness and purpose into your life, she has a simple but highly effective solution that she recommends, and it starts with attentiveness to the people around you, the virtue of noticing. She says, focusing on the present is increasingly quite the challenge. Daily news bombards us with fears about the future, and some of us might find ourselves thinking about a past stage of life or daydreaming about a hypothetical future. Well, while contemplating the past and future are not necessarily wrong, it's easy to substitute them for being present in our everyday lives. Yet she says it's the now where we can best serve others. Attentiveness or a sustained awareness of the present moment might be a forgotten virtue, but she says it's an important one. And as many people today are increasingly lonely, finding ways to serve and connect with others is all the more important. Now, Alethea Hitt says, look, we've all been there, grabbing lunch with a friend, laughing about past escapades and memories, telling the friend enthusiastically about work or school or our family life, and then realizing the friend's not listening. Maybe he keeps glancing at his phone. Maybe he's asking questions you've already answered. Maybe he just can't keep his eyes off the Packers game on the television set behind you. Whatever it is, it's painful. Inattention communicates ambivalence, and within the realm of relationships, ambivalence hurts. So in today's era of constant stimulation and distractions from our devices, attentiveness is a way to show loved ones that we care about their accomplishments, problems, and lives. Attentiveness, then, is part of serving others. It communicates to them that we sincerely care about their lives. It shows that we're willing to direct precious time and energy to listening and interacting well. Now, she says, to be sure, it's not easy to pay attention, at least not in the focused way that service sometimes requires. We all have responsibilities, personal concerns, or to-do lists that keep stomping their way through even the most well-intentioned minds. And in today's era of constant stimulation and distraction from our devices, well, our attention's already divided. It takes effort to push the distractions away, to practice active listening, and focus our thoughts on the person we're speaking to. Still, attentiveness is another way to apply the famous golden rule. If we'd like people to listen well to us, Shouldn't we do the same for them? Beyond giving others our full attention, we can also use attentiveness to find ways to help others in our lives. 
We can't take opportunities when we that we don't know about. It's hard to fix the carburetor without first seeing the check engine light pop on. It's hard to mend a hole in a sweater we didn't know was ripped. Perhaps less obvious, though, is the number of opportunities we have but don't know about. In many of the situations around us, there are chances to serve and help others. Attentiveness opens our eyes to these opportunities, helping us to effectively navigate and respond to problems. For example, she says, A lady at church noticed that our pastor's voice was occasionally getting hoarse halfway through the morning service. And every week since then, she's made sure to keep a full cup of water ready near the pulpit. See how simple that is? Attentiveness helped her to take action, caused her to see the problem, and respond to it. Now, she says, other people in my church work to pitch in and help when younger couples are expecting. They may volunteer to watch the older children, for instance, or make a meal after the baby is born. Again, noticing the need serves as a catalyst for serving it. So, some service opportunities, too, are time-bound. Maybe your student friend has exams. Wouldn't they appreciate a quick text, a small good luck as you finish prepping? Maybe an acquaintance from work has a surgery. Wouldn't they enjoy a note, something like, I hope everything goes well, or I just wanted to say, I'm thinking of you. Every day we encounter little moments to serve others, moments that will soon disappear. Attentiveness is a way to grab them, to uh, grab a hold of these moments, finding opportunities to serve, and then using them. And she says it's not always as hard as we think. Alethea Hitt says attentiveness may seem like an insignificant skill, but it's pretty powerful. By focusing on the present, we can better notice the needs of those around us, and we can better interact with the people we see daily. Attentiveness shows other people we care, and as such, it belongs on the list of virtues. Now, that's not really, you know, groundbreaking, like, wow, how did she come up with this incredibly complicated hypothesis? No, this is very simple stuff. But I'll tell you, it really hit home. And I think of those times, man, I have, I have so frustrated my wife before when I'm in the middle of reading something or I'm looking at something on my phone and she's trying to talk to me and I'm still trying to halfway keep tabs on what I was doing. She's had to point it out to me before. Hey, are you even hearing what I'm saying? I have to admit, that's, it's, it's not a good thing. So I'm working on this myself, but I just want to, I want to attest to what uh, Alethea Hitz is, is saying. When you start paying attention to the people around you, and it can be something as simple as noticing somebody with a walker coming up to the door of the restaurant, go hold the door. That attentiveness is the key to recognizing opportunities for service, and service will bring you happiness regardless of what's going on. This is The Brian Hyde Show.